please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 10. We're in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we find ourselves in the latter part of chapter 10 this morning. We looked at verses 1 through 13 last time we were together. And we looked at the need for understanding God's righteousness in those verses. Today we'll examine the proclamation of and the response to the gospel. You remember in Romans 9, Paul focuses on or focuses our attention on divine interaction and salvation. Romans 9 is probably the greatest chapter on God's sovereignty, God's election in all the Bible. Well, in chapter 10, Paul turns our attention to the human side of the equation. I don't think it's any mistake, indeed, that the greatest chapter in the Bible on God's election and God's sovereignty is right next door to the greatest missionary chapter, the greatest evangelism chapter, not only in all of Romans, but possibly in all of the Bible. The two go together. The sovereignty of God does and should not lead us to be any less enthusiastic about seeing people come into the kingdom. We don't know who God is working on. All we know is he puts people in front of us. And First Peter says all of us as believers are like finely thrown seeds. We're sown seed in various places in order that we would share the good news with those in our pathway. And so once again in Romans 10, Paul turns our attention to the human side of the equation. What must happen? Well, there are two things I want you to notice this morning. The gospel must be proclaimed, and that is in verses 14 through 17, the proclamation of the gospel. And then in verses 18 through 21, the response to the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel, number one. Number two, the response to the gospel. What can we learn in these verses? about Paul's concern for his Jewish friends, those whom he has known since childhood, and his intense desire that they would come to faith. What can we learn? Well, much, I believe. But let's pray first and ask the Lord to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we long to see Jesus and Him only. And I pray, Lord, that You would work Your power and strength through weakness. In the foolishness of the message preached, I pray You would manifest Your glory and touch all of our hearts, change our lives, and we'll give You all the praise and glory and honor for the outcome. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you remember last time we ended with Romans 10.13. As Paul said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, now in verse 14, he asks a series of questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? I want you to notice 
some things about these words. First of all, the means to proclaim the gospel. The means to proclaim the gospel. Beginning with verse 14, Paul builds a case for God's use of means. And in this case, God's use of individuals or evangelism. You know, the Lord delights in using various means, especially his children to accomplish his will in bringing men and women to himself. We have a chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith about that. That God is not obligated to use means. He can do whatever he wants to directly. <clears throat> but he's pleased to use means. And the Lord delights in using individuals, his children, for his will to be done. The essence of Paul's argument is seen if we put the six verbs together in opposite order. Christ sends heralds through his church. Heralds preach. People hear. Hearers believe and believers call. And those who call are saved. As I mentioned, God doesn't have to use means. He can convert a sinner directly. We think of John the Baptist, who was converted in the womb. We think of the Apostle Paul. Nobody was used in order to give the message to him. God acted directly and converted that man on the road to Damascus. Nevertheless, the Lord, even in these cases, used Zechariah and Elizabeth in bringing forth John the Baptist as his parents. And the Lord used Ananias. After Paul was stricken with blindness for three days, Ananias was his instrument to go and to open his eyes. And I think Paul's words are fascinating in light of the content of this chapter. As we see God's sovereignty and then the human element used in verse 10. Why would Paul say that? All these verses, how will they call on him and who they have not believed? How will they believe in him and whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? It simply points to our responsibility as Christians to take part in God's plan to get the gospel out to the nations. And we do that by being instruments in his hands. And we also do that by serving. You see, once we profess faith in Christ and we unite with His church, the Lord wants us to serve. Now, the Lord could bring about all of His goals without us, but He is pleased to use us. And that's why the Bible makes it clear that every believer has at least one gift. God has given us gifts and graces in order to serve the body of Christ. And I want to challenge you with that. If you're not serving, that you would see the importance of the human element here and the fact that God uses means to get his gospel out. Not only that, but there is content to the gospel. Look at verse 15b. How will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now that is a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. It's a beautiful section, Isaiah 52, which speaks of those who proclaim the good news of release from the Babylonian exile and Babylonian captivity. And we have to ask the question, what is the good news of these great things? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 52, you'll see concepts and phrases like this. Your God reigns. 
the Lord will comfort his people. That is, the sovereign Lord of the universe has come to rescue those in bondage. And it goes on to say, he has redeemed Jerusalem. That is, this great God in Isaiah 52, he comes for redemption. And redemption demands a ransom. And then he says there's peace and happiness and salvation. God promises that to his people who are in exile, who are in bondage. And his Messiah will bring all these and more. Now I find it fascinating that Isaiah 52, as you know, rolls right into Isaiah 53. That sounded profound, didn't it? <laughs> What is, what is Isaiah 53? It's the servant song. It's the servant song. All of those magnificent verses that point us to the Lord Jesus as a ransom, as he comes to lay down his life for God's people. And ladies and gentlemen, if the heralds were celebrated here, how beautiful are the feet of one who brings good tidings of great things. How much more Welcome should the heralds of the gospel be. You see, there is a content to the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Christ came and died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised from the grave on the third day, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures. And he is coming again for all those who place their trust in him, their faith in him. Him. The gospel is not mere good advice. It's not another of many self-help remedies. No, it has content that Christ was crucified for our sins as God's only way of salvation. And so it's no surprise that Isaiah 52 serves like a preamble of the good things, the good tidings, the good news that's going to come with the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has content, ladies and gentlemen. And it is intelligible, and it demands faith and trust. And that's the third thing under this, the proclamation of the gospel. That is the goal of the gospel. God uses means to proclaim the gospel. The gospel has content. It tells the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as a ransom for our sins. But notice the goal of the gospel in verses 16 and 17, and that is saving faith. Paul makes it clear that not everyone believes this good news. In fact, he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I think sometimes Paul is sending us on a scavenger hunt here to make us read our Bibles. Because he quotes three or four passages, but he doesn't quote the entire verse. And this is the first one. This is the first one. Isaiah 53, verse 1. What does he say? Paul quotes it, Lord, who has believed our report? But the actual verse says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? How do you know if the arm of the Lord's salvation has been revealed to you? The answer is you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. That's the goal of the gospel. It is not to persuade people intellectually. It is not to move them emotionally. 
because only God can save a sinner spiritually. And so the gospel is proclaimed with the hope that the Lord Almighty will stir up and bring forth saving faith in the heart of the listener. That that man or that woman would transfer their trust from themselves or anyone else or anything else and place it squarely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I believe Paul inserted that there because Christ is the ultimate word. You know, back in Hebrews, the Bible says God spoke through many prophets in many ways in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. But now he has spoken fully and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos, the word of God. And so what Paul is saying is, when you hear the good news of all that Christ has done, and you look at the Christ as your only hope for salvation, then you cast your entire self on him by faith. That's what salvation is. And God demands faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, the gospel doesn't call you to do anything. It calls you to believe. The gospel doesn't say, here's what you do. Here's a three-step progress to get yourself out of the mess that you're in due to the bondage of sin. No, the gospel calls everyone to lay hold of God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And the only way to do that is to put your faith and your trust in Him. Well, that is the proclamation of the gospel. Now notice in verses 18 through 21, Paul turns his attention to the response of the gospel. I should say better, the response to the gospel. And this is interesting what Paul does here. He outlines the response of Israel to God's favor and God's grace and God's revelation. And there are some important lessons we can learn from Israel's history. These verses are not particularly pleasant. They remind us of what Paul has already said, the failure of the Jews, their, their unwillingness to follow Jehovah. They're stopping up the ears. They're not listening to him. And so through chapters 9 and 10 and 11, Paul makes it clear that there are going to be many Jews who are going to perish. Not all Israel makes up true, authentic, spiritual Israel. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see their failures. And so what I'd like to do is just simply look at those three areas, hearing the truth, knowing the Lord, and submission and obedience to Him. These are the things where Israel failed. And I think we can learn some lessons uh, from these verses. Look at verse 18. First of all, hearing the truth. I think Paul has an interesting choice in his biblical quotation. He quotes a verse from Psalm 19, which we read this morning. And Psalm 19, as you know, celebrates the universal witness of the heavens to their creator through general and special revelation. General revelation is what we see in God's created order. And everything that we see points to and screams that there is a God. Special revelation comes primarily through His Word, where God makes His will known and clear to us. And so Paul understands the text. If you look at verse 18, it says, Surely they have never heard, have they? Meaning the Jews. And he goes on to say, Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the world, and their words to the ends of the world. What in the world is Paul doing? 
Well, Paul understands the text of Psalm 19. And I believe he is using it in a masterful way. He is describing the universality of the gospel. God's revelation in the realm of creation and in that of redemption is such that in both cases, it forces itself on our attention. In other words, there's no way of escape. As Paul will say later in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. You see, general revelation says that God Almighty created the heavens and the earth. That includes every creature on the earth. And that includes every human being. And so when a human being looks at themselves, it's inescapable the fact that God created me. I'm not a piece of sledge that came up off the ocean floor. No, God created me in His image. I was listening to NPR the other day, and there was this older lady on there talking about the created order and monkeys and chimpanzees and that sort of thing, and she was horrified that man would not be categorized with these animals. She thought it was very non-progressive. <laughs> and as I thought about that, I thought, there's the world. We see ourselves as objects like animals. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And God has put in the heart of every human being a sense of longing, a sense of intuition that I am not an animal. I am created in the image of God. And that's what gives a human being respect and dignity. That's what makes us who we are. And so God's thumbprint, can be said in a word, is on every human being. And that's why Psalm 19, which begins with general revelation and ends with special revelation, screams that there is a God. And Paul is saying, you've got to hear the truth. Hear the truth. Did the Jews hear the truth? Well, they heard it audibly. They heard it externally, but they didn't hear it efficaciously and internally. And so Paul is transferring eloquent biblical language about global witness from the creation to the church, taking the former as symbolic of the latter. If God wants the general revelation of His glory to be universal, how much more must He want special revelation of His grace to be universal too? And the bottom line is the Lord has spoken clearly through creation and His Word. He spoke to the prophets, and as Hebrews 1 says, in these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the world. I can't help but think of the words quoted in Hebrews 2. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. What can we learn from Israel? They were surrounded by truth. And they heard God's prophets speak God's words, but they only heard them audibly. They heard the information, but it didn't change their hearts and lives. That's why Jesus said on so many occasions, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You may hear things, but you're not really listening. And the outcome of that will be demonstrated by the fruit of your life. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep 
hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. One thing you can learn about God from the Israelites is that He wants us to hear His voice. And now, all the more so, the voice of Jesus in your heart, convincing us of our sin and our need for Him as the only hope of salvation. Let me challenge you to hear God's Word, not just audibly, but internally. Now you'll notice the second quotation in verse 19. And this relates to knowing the Lord. We've got to hear the truth, but we also need to know the Lord. Look at verse 19 carefully. Now in one sense, these verses, or verse 19, uh, is going to point to the fact that Israel's lack of faith was due to her unwillingness and not her ignorance. In other words, she couldn't claim ignorance. On the other hand, these verses point to Israel's lack of intimacy with Jehovah. The quotation is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. And you'll notice it demonstrates God's justice. You see, when the Bible uses the word know or knowing, many times and often it doesn't mean knowing more information. It means knowing in an intimate sense, as Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And we know that the knowing that Paul is talking about here refers to that second usage, intimacy. Why? Because God is a jealous God. Look at verse 19 carefully. I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Paul says, did they not hear? No, they heard. Did they not know? And notice how he answers, quoting Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. If you look again at the whole context of verse 32, 21, or the whole quotation of the verse, it says this, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me with their anger to their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And through Isaiah, the Lord declared, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. You see, the problem here is not a lack of information. We've already settled that. Israel heard the information. They heard the good news. But it wasn't heard down deep into the heart. It didn't change them. It was mind-informing, but not heart-changing. And now the Lord says, you don't know me. Lack of information is not the problem. The Lord is making it clear that He has and always will have a desire for an intimate relationship with His people. That's why Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, The Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You know, you can be close to Jesus. You can have right information and yet still not know him. Did you notice in the gospel reading this morning, Jesus was in his own hometown and he was performing miracles and that sort of thing. 
And the people started to get offended by it. We know him. We know that his mother is Mary. We know his profession. He's a carpenter. We know his brothers and his sisters are even here. Where did this man get this wisdom and knowledge? You see, these people didn't have a lack of information. What they had is a lack of knowledge, intimate knowledge of God and His Word and all that He promised in sending His Son. And Jesus could say, you know my parents, you know my profession, you know my brothers and my sisters, but you don't know me. And that's why you hold me in contempt. Because your heart is not hungry for me. And you're not listening and you're not hearing with the ears of Israel in the way it should have been. But they look for this Messiah. God wants us to know Him. Israel didn't know the Lord that way. They were not intimate with Him. They were not close to Him. And the Lord demands that we should be. Look at verse 20. He quotes Isaiah. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. <clears throat> Knowing God is not difficult because He is eager to reveal Himself to us. You see what Paul is doing? Paul is saying, in order for God who loved His children, Israel, to deal with them, He sought to make them jealous. <clears throat> How? By including the Gentiles. By sending the gospel to Him, which is what He always planned to do, even when He blessed Abraham. This was no surprise. It was no new plan. God always planned to do that. And he says in verse 20, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Once again, Paul quotes a part of Isaiah 65, verse 1. But let me read you the whole verse. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Jehovah is saying, I make myself available to all the Gentiles. And taken together, the three clauses of this verse, Isaiah 65 verse 1, make a clear picture. God deliberately reverses the roles between himself and the Gentiles. You see, it would be normal for them to ask, to seek, to knock, as Jesus would later put it and to adopt toward him the respectful attitude of a servant at his master's disposal, saying, Here I am. Instead, although they did not ask or seek or offer themselves in his service, he allowed himself to be found by them. He revealed himself to them, and he even offered himself to them, saying humbly to them, Here I am. You know, when God first spoke to Isaiah in chapter 6, Here am I, send me. Here the Lord reverses the roles and He shows the incredible, lavish grace that He would extend to the Gentile world. Only God could do this. Only God can discipline His children Israel and at the same time bring in the Gentiles. Extend grace and kindness to you and me. Whenever God does one thing, He could be doing a thousand more. Don't ever lose sight of that. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so, knowing the Lord means a whole lot more than information. Israel knows the truth about Jehovah. And how do we know that? Because God's jealousy arouses them. And how do we know that? Because of their attitude toward the Gentiles. See, Israel could never claim ignorance. They hated the Gentiles. And why? 
because of their own self-righteousness. And so when the gospel itself turned to the Gentiles, that really, really upset them. And that explains a good bit of the uh, persecution that we find in the New Testament. Well, the response to the gospel, we need to hear it. We need to hear it with our hearts down deep inside. We need to recognize that it leads us to a personal relationship with this God. Not simply information in a book, but a relationship with a living God through Jesus Christ, that we would know Him and make Him known. And then finally, what does it lead to? What should the response be? Submission and obedience to Jesus. Look at verse 21 with me. The final verse of the chapter demonstrates, once again, Israel's disobedience. As for Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's a quotation from Isaiah 65, verse 2. And the passage indicates that Israel was fully responsible for the divine judgment that was pronounced on it. The fact that the nation, day after day, week after week, year after year, continued to be disobedient and to contradict God, even in spite of God's outstretched hands and patience and invitation, made matters worse for Israel. It's a sad ending. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know, when I read those words, I can't help but think of Jesus' words in Luke 13, 34, where he cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. I read that verse, and I want to be just the opposite. I not only want to hear the Lord's words through His Word. I want to hear the voice of Jesus in my heart. I want to respond to Him. I want to know Him better. I want an intimate relationship that changes my life. And in order to do that, there needs to be not disobedience and obstinacy. There needs to be submission and obedience. Submission and obedience. All day long, I've stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. I can't think of anything more than the cross. Jesus stretched out his hands as he was nailed to the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That disobedient and obstinate people includes you and me. And the Lord invites us with those outstretched arms to come to him, find rest and peace, forgiveness of sins because of his death on that cross and resurrection and to embrace Him as our Lord and Savior, as the lover of our souls, as the one who continues to speak to our hearts day in and day out, encouraging us and leading us in the way of obedience and submission to Him. Let's pray together. Lord God, this is a challenging passage, profuse with the Old Testament. And we see in this, Lord, your desire to save sinners, your desire to bring in Gentiles, your desire to make Israel jealous, to win Jews to yourself. Lord, you do so much in so many ways. It's beyond our comprehension. And we marvel. But Lord, help us to remember the simplicity of hearing your voice in our hearts through your word, of knowing you, 
in an intimate manner and of practicing submission and obedience to your commands day in and day out that we might walk this life in peace and joy, the fullness of joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we experience all these things. And I pray that there's one or two here that have never tasted the goodness of the Lord, never put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, you would convict them today by your Holy Spirit and bring them into the kingdom. And give us all cause for rejoicing as you do these things. And we ask these things humbly now in Jesus' name. Amen.